um, kind of realized that we don't actually have um, a title for the series, but one of the things that's been floating in my mind, I haven't got rid of, but hopefully when I meet up with the other elders, we can ratify, um, is rethinking John's revelation. Rethinking John's revelation. Um, it's just one of those things that have stuck with me as we kind of going, this, going round this time as to what's actually happening in God's word. So, by way of format, I want to kind of pray. And I want to kind of go through each of the seven churches bit by bit and make some commentary on that. So I want to start off by praying and kind of just jump right in there and go bit by bit and hopefully come to the end and have something really tangible to speak for it. The Spirit has his way. So let's pray as we jump in to Revelations 2 and 3. So Lord, again, we come before your word hungry, in need of nourishment there, Lord God, in need of your enrichment. And Father, we know that you long to do this. Lord, again, he says in James 1, if you lack wisdom, ask and you will give generously, dear Lord Father. And he says your word is good enough to make one wise. And for this reason, dear Lord God, we come because, Lord, it will make that which we lack, dear Lord God, our spirit man, to be built up, to be able to be established on the promises of the triune God, that which is promised by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we can, dear Lord God, indeed, um, rise and be your people. And Father, for this reason, Lord, we give thanks for that which you have given us. Even this word, dear Lord God, presented as complex and difficult, but yet, Lord Father, you have given it to us. And as we labor through it, dear Lord Father, let your spirit indeed speak, as it says repeatedly, and help us, dear Lord God, to have an ear to hear what your spirit is actually saying to the church. So be with us there, Lord God, as we go through this time, and may it be a blessing to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I kind of jump in there, I just wanted to start by way of introduction with uh, something, again, that will hopefully help maybe understand what is going on in the greater context of this, and maybe what's going on in our hearts as we talk about the issues of compromise, the potential of compromise within the Christian life. And I want to read an extract from, um, from C.S. Lewis's um, essay on the inner ring. And it's a short excerpt, but yet lengthy by virtue of the fact that it's not all of it, but it's worth going through in order for us to kind of maybe understand some of the deeper things that are going on in this text. And I'll read this. It says this. People who believe themselves to be free and indeed are free from snobbery and who read satires on snobbery with tranquil superiority may be devoured by desire in another form. 
It may be the very intensity of their desire to enter some quite different ring which renders them immune from all the allurements of high life. An invitation from a duchess would be very cold comfort to a man smarting under the sense of exclusion from some artistic or communistic coterie. Poor man. It's not large, lighted rooms or champagne or even scandals about peers and cabinet ministers that he wants. It's the sacred little attic or studio. The heads bent together, the fog of tobacco smoke, and the delicious knowledge that we, we four or five, all huddled beside this stove are the ones who know. Often the desire conceals itself so well that we hardly recognize the pleasures of fruition. Men tell not only their wives, but sometimes wives, but themselves, that it's a hardship to stay late at the office or the school on some bit of important extra work which they have been left in, let in for, because they and so and so and two others are the only people left in the place who really know how things are run. But it's not quite true. It is a terrible bore, of course, when old Fatty Smithson draws you aside and whispers, look here, we've got to get you in on this examination somehow. Or Charles and I saw at once that you've got to be on this committee. A terrible bore. Ah, but how much more terrible if you were left out. It is tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoons, but to have them free because you don't matter... That is much worse. Freud would say that no doubt that the whole thing is a subterfuge of the sexual impulse. I wonder whether the shoe is sometimes on the other foot. I wonder whether in ages of promiscuity, many a virginity has not been lost less in obedience to Venus than in obedience to the lure of the Caucasus. For of course, when promiscuity is the fashion, the chaste are outsiders. They are ignorant of something that other people know. They are uninitiated. And as for lighter matters, the number of people who first smoked or first got drunk for a similar reason is probably very large. The Inner Ring by C.S. Lewis. It's quite true, isn't it? I like the way Lewis writes because to some extent he kind of gets into the way that we think but lifts the lid on it and, and, and kind of expands on this whole idea of what is it do I really want? How does desire grow to the point where, in very subtle ways at the beginning, I change the way that I behave, but down the road you ultimately change into somebody completely different? Before I start and read from chapter 2, I want to set some of the context as well. I want to kind of wheel us back to Daniel. Obviously, the connections between Daniel and Revelation is one that is incredibly strong, and nobody obviously doubts. Revelation can be seen as an expanding on the visions of Daniel by adding important details such as who the Son of Man is. With this view of Revelation being a continuation of Daniel, We tend to think that it clarifies the ambiguities of Daniel Daniel and his visions. 
But this, I believe, is done at the expense of not giving much thought of how Daniel offers clarity to Revelation. So there's that, that feeling that it all works kind of one way. We're, we're moving forward, we're progressing, and to some extent, we don't kind of look back. But I think that would be a mistake. I want to list some of the ways I believe that Daniel helps provide a framework for us to understand Revelation, and in particular, chapters 2 and 3. So what we find in Daniel is that Daniel, along with the rest of Judea, find themselves in a, situ- in a new situation in Babylon as they go from the promised land to exile. So there's a huge change in how Judah now has to relate to the covenant. This, I believe, necessitates Yahweh's intervention by way of both Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel having dreams and visions of what God is doing behind the scenes. When the terms of the covenant changes, expect God to speak through his prophets. So every time you see a huge change in the covenant, like with Noah, like with Abraham, and then obviously with Moses, and then with with David, and every time there's a change in the covenant, God now speaks and clarifies the new terms of the covenant or brings more detail to the covenant. And that's what I believe that Daniel does because Israel are no longer in the land. So God is speaking not only through Daniel, but even through Nebuchadnezzar. This framework then gives us how do God's people live outside the promised land? As we see Daniel and his friends navigate their way through the pagan culture as they endeavor to be good citizens, but not to the detriment of their commitment to Yahweh. Here I believe we see the theme of Jesus' parables in Matthew 24 and 25, as I outlined last week, reemerge of what do the believers do whilst they are waiting for the return of the kingdom or the master. A pattern in Daniel also comes into view as it seems to be a reflection of, of revelation, but in reverse. For example, Israel leave the promised land and go into exile. Whereas in Revelation, the new Israel, the church, live in exile, but look forward to going to the new Eden, or the new heaven and the new earth. I believe that Daniel, and particularly the narrative parts, give us an example of how God's people should live in exile. Turning now to Revelation 2, chapter 1, I want to read the first letter to the church of Ephesus. To the, cha- to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I have, and yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So before I kind of break down Ephesus into some of the smaller pieces of how I, what I think is happening there, I just want to kind of say that I believe that the way chapters 2 and 3 work are on two levels. And it's nothing new, but it's worth noting at the, at the start, it works on two levels. First, there are letters written to actual churches. So they're, they're real letters to real geographical churches in history. But rather than favoring the New Testament style of writing of letters, as we see in Paul and Peter and John, it favors the Old Testament style of prophetic oracles. You know, the thus saith the Lord, the very kind of explicit, like, you, you know, it's not really so much the voice of the writer that you're hearing, but pretty much, this is pretty much God all the way through. The second level is as pastoral and prophetic addresses to the church, universally, in both time and geography. In other words, wherever the church existed, or has existed over the last 2,000 years, and no matter where we are, this letter speaks to that, because again, the whole idea of the seven churches speaks about completion about I'm speaking to the complete church, the whole church. And that's the symbolism I think that's important to kind of get to grips here as we rethink Revelation. In some ways, this is obvious because even the letters that we receive from Paul and from Peter and from John and from Jude and James and such, we still do actually believe that they speak to the church today. And it seems obvious when you look at it that way, but we need to realize that chapters 2 and 3 work pretty much the same way. We are speaking to an actual church, but we're also speaking to the church. So I want to kind of break down the the sections, and this is what I've kind of done, and I, I probably could have broken it down even in different ways, but is to outline the attribute of Christ that is revealed. So there's something about Christ that is normally revealed in terms of the formula of the letter. There is something, in most of them, good in which to say. There's something bad in which to say. There is an application. What do I have to do? What does the church have to do in order to address those issues? And there is also the promise of a reward. And so as we go through it, I want to break it down on those particular levels. So the attribute of God, of, G, of Christ that is revealed to Ephesus is he who has the seven stars of the church in his hand and who walks among the seven lampstands or candlesticks. So Jesus is sovereign in control of his church and is present with it. This is where we left off last week, that Christ is in the midst of his church, praying for his church, involved in his church, 
He is in sovereign control of his church. So what's the good? Much as they are warned by Paul, as we look back into, into Acts, to be on their guard, it would appear that they have indeed followed his instructions and been on guard against false prophets. So there's that section in Acts where, again, Paul specifically tells them to beware of wolves that will come in sheep's clothing, that will come to penetrate the church and to break it up, basically to make them into Jews. And they followed that. This inconsistent work they have done, and they've done it without becoming weary. So in other words, they've, they've really attached themselves to this, and they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, who are most likely an antinomian group, as we see that their, their, their names come up, who believe that they could live in harmony with the surrounding culture. In other words, they were, they were teachers who, who believed that you didn't need to kind of like pull yourself and live completely apart from the secular culture. That you could live within that pluralistic culture and live quite help and, and quite healthily. But we will see that they saw through them and knew that they were teaching bad things. So what's the bad though? It says they have lost their first love, which is probably not just about a loss of love for Christ, which obviously it does imply, but a loss of true fellowship and grace with outsiders. So you can get to that point where you're so weary of, of outsiders, as soon as you see somebody coming, that you're at that point where I like, said, oh man, another one. And you haven't even heard what they believe or say yet. And they're on the case. So they've lost that ability to be in fellowship and to be courteous and to be generous and to be good stewards of those who come into the church fellowship. So what do they need to do? They need to remember first and foremost. It's interesting. It's the first act they need to do, and again, it is, it's described as an active act, not a passive act. You need to remember. Jesus says, remember how you, what you first received. Remember what it was like to be a young church, a new church blossoming. How beautiful that is. I, I constantly love seeing those new fellowships and the, and, the, and, the, and the community that it creates. Especially, I've loved the early days of Ecclesia when it was South London, of the constant surprise birthday parties. We're constantly in each other's lives, we, and, it was, and it's beautiful. And we can get to that place where fellowship becomes a bit more labored. They need to go back to that place of humility, of being a believer saved by grace, of realizing that they do owe fellowship, they do owe people an opportunity and maybe even the opportunity of those who believe these false things an opportunity to come and learn from them the failure to do this will result in their removal of their lampstand which can can be implied to mean that their identity as a church 
will be lost. The reward, however, before you get the reward, you, you get this formula of he who has hears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And that admission is, 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 is important. It's what particularly makes it in that Old Testament style, an oracle from a prophet. And it should make you alert to the way that the statement is used by Isaiah in Christ as it implies that the audience are being judged. The audience are being judged. The implication to listening to listen incisively or to listen carefully to what, is being, what they've been challenged with is something that if you know a little bit about human psychology or you, can, you listen to yourself or you can watch yourself carefully, you realize that the minute you hear something critical about yourself, we can start to turn off our listening and our backs now up. And so, because you stand in that place of judgment, I have this against you, now all of a sudden, and we stop listening. And the weirdest thing is that you will hear it more than you hear the good things that have been said about you, but you're not really processing it, you're just thinking about what a cheek that they have that against me. Especially if you're one of those A-star type of people. I just want to get it all right and have nothing to kind of go back on because I put a lot of work into this. And so it speaks to that human psychology, that ability to be shut off from that which God wants to challenge you with. The reward, however, is the opportunity to eat of the tree of life. Now, this is also important when the rewards always connects us also to that far end of the book, specifically chapter 21 and 22, where the new Eden, the new heaven, the new earth are now being revealed. So now you're be, it's connecting you to that book because it's like, this is where it's heading to. If you get this right, if you follow this, this is where you're going to be sharing that portion of the new heaven and the new earth, which I'm revealing to you. And we'll continue to reveal for you throughout the rest of the book. So this is not disconnected from the rest of Revelation. It's truly connected. Because that new heaven and new earth in chapters 21 and 22 is what's in view. So moving on to the church at Smyrna. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
So the attribute of Christ revealed here is he is the first and the last, was dead and is alive. And Jesus, therefore, Jesus is revealed, therefore, as the author of creation and recreation. His death marks the end of the old creation and the beginning of the new creation. So that's what's been revealed. This will be important for the church at Smyrna because of the persecution they're going to go through. And he's saying, again, remember what I said. They've been buttered up. Don't worry about death. Don't worry about death because I am the resurrection and the life. So the good, well, look. There is not so much good here but the Lord knows that they are going to go through a time of tribulation. So there's no kicking them whilst they are down. They're described as poor, which is best taken literally as their unwillingness. This, their, their poorness has probably come from an unwillingness to compromise and has brought punishment and boycotting of their businesses. At this time, Christianity was an illegal religion. Rome only recognized certain official sanctioned religions, but many got away with not being shut down as it was argued that Christianity was a continuation of Judaism, which in many ways is true. And so that's how they kind of were working. But many of the persecutions came when Jews, who were, again, of the old faith, reported against them and says, they've got nothing to do with Judaism. We don't acknowledge them. They're not a, a, an official sect of Jews. They are on their own and they are not part of that. And as a result of this, persecution would come on them because they were now seen as an illegal religion. And that's probably exactly what's going on. And Jesus describes them as the synagogue of Satan, those Jews who were now squealing on the Christians. They're not part of us. So the slander that came from the Jews is as the synagogue of Satan or as the accuser of the brethren. And they, as they disassociated themselves from the Christian cult or the Christian Faith. So the false Israel, not the true Jews, attack the true new Israel. And this is what's been described. The church as the new Israel, the new people of God. Where do we bring this from? Well, Romans 2, verse 28 and 29 says this. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. The circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here Paul makes that distinction between ethnic Jews and true Jews. He says that if you are to be a child of Abraham, you need to do the works of Abraham. That's what makes you the children of Abraham. And many other texts obviously argue this point of the church being the new Israel. Well, the bad, we've already discussed this. Well, there's no kicking people when they're already going through the mill. And this is something we need to remember pastorally, isn't it? That when life is hard, 
You've just lost your job. You're struggling in long unemployment. This is not the time for you to kind of come around pastorally and start wondering, brother, there's an issue with you not paying your tithes. And if you really want that new job, you want to sow a seed. And I've seen people do this. This is not a time for you to lose faith. It's not a time for you to lose that, continue on. Or someone's going through a bereavement. Brother, sister, I haven't seen you at church. No kicking people while they're down. But come alongside them. Hey, how's things going? How can I be praying for you? What's going on? If Jesus does it, maybe we should do it too, right? The application. Well, they need to hold on. They need to stay faithful. And this is one of the difficult parts of even my job, especially as a chaplain, is to go and keep on telling people to hold on. It's difficult when day after day their situation is not moving. And even pastorally amongst people where long-term illnesses, long-term situations are just going on and you just basically have to keep on telling them to hold on. But what more can you tell them to do having done everything to stand? Stand therefore. There's nothing more to it than just to stand. This is important because prolonged persecution can present us with real pastoral issues. The book of Hebrews is a great case in point. As the Jews to whom the letter is written are looking back to Judaism in order to bring their hardships to an end. When you have the ability to bring a trial to an end, you really need pastoral help. So it's one thing when you're going through something you can't stop, but when you've got the opportunity to stop it, you need that pastoral assistance. You need someone who's going to come alongside you and say, brother, sister, you need to hold on. The temptation will be strong if you hold the key to your fate, so to speak. But again, it's been already been revealed that Jesus holds the key to his church. The reward, the crown of life will be given. This is an important cultural artifact, especially when you're dealing with an ancient Roman world where numerous places would have had games and it just so happens that Smyrna had a stadium where the games were played. And so this was an important emblem. This was an important cultural artifact. Remember, again, these things were designed to be written so that the people who, under, who, who were living there understood it culturally. So when they would have said, I would give you the crown of life, they would have seen numerous athletes throughout the years being crowned with the reef and being presented as victors. And so even as they're suffering, that picture of Jesus saying, I'm going to give you a laurel reef, just like those victors you've seen. And rather than you looking like a loser right now, you are going to look like a champion. So the crowns, again, connecting us to the rest of the book, isn't it? The crowns that we receive will come. The loss of life that some will surely face will be compensated with immunity as well from the second death. We all die once, right? But not all of us die twice. Or suffer twice. Twice. 
Let's move on to Pergamum. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the attribute of Christ revealed is the one with the two-edged sword. Again, remember, this also not only, this looks back to what we saw in terms of the profile of Jesus in chapter 1, right? So different attributes have been listed again in relation to the churches. Again, more, more reason to realize that this is, you know, what we're getting is not a, a precise portrait of Jesus, but a representation, a symbolism of Jesus. So the one with the two-edged sword is a symbol of his Jesus' impending judgment and destruction of the church. So what's the good? Well, in the past, they did not deny the faith. In past persecutions, and that's important to note, because at least they've had the legacy of being resistant as a church, even Antiochus being probably one of its most prominent martyrs. So what does the seat of Satan mean? Well, the seat of Satan more than likely is a reference to Pergamum being an imperial city. So what does that mean? Well, in an imperial city, they had, they, you had to bid for an opportunity to be an imperial city. And if you were nominated by Rome to be an imperial city, you could build a temple to Caesar. And then that city became a place where you could come and worship Caesar in that particular temple. Hence, while it's been described as the seat of Satan, because now they're building temples to kings as places of worship. No doubt where you would have to drink and obviously make sacrifices to Caesar in order to get ahead in business. So remember, there's all these guilds that would be connected to Rome. The blacksmith guild, the, you know, the, the, the woodworking guild. And all of these places would have, been, would have required you to show your allegiance to Rome in order for you to get in. There was no free entry. And again, remembering that picture of the temples of the old days were the restaurants of the ancient world. It's where you went to eat. It's where you went to fellowship. It's where you went to celebrate birthdays. It's where you went to celebrate signing of new deals and ratify them. Everything was done almost through the temple system. So in many ways, there was no escaping it. But in Pergamum, it was particularly hard because 
there was a temple to Caesar there. So in such cities, the cult of the emperor would be strongly practiced. Anyone looking to get ahead in life would be expected to drink a toast to Caesar, declaring him as Lord. Well, what's the bad? It would appear that what was endured in the past was no longer tolerated in the present. Balaam and the Nicolaitans are those who teach the people to compromise so as to move them from fidelity to God's covenant into a position of judgment outside it. You have to be careful about who is instructing you in, the, in your walk, for they could be teaching you how to compromise. For those of us who are, who, who are again, exposed to numerous teachers, and maybe we have a favorite. We need to be careful who's instructing us. Balaam is a consistent figure in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament as a symbol of a false teacher who is willing to sell you a lie in order to get paid. So one of the ways you can tell that this is an, the, the, the person that may be instructing you is an issue is maybe their wealth. How do we know this? Well, let's look at Second Peter 2, right? But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, this is talking of false creatures, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their destruct deceptions. Whilst they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Who's teaching you? Who's instructing you in the way of the Lord? The application, they need to repent. But repenting here will surely mean putting themselves in harm's way. Because they can't do the things that were protecting them from persecution. This will surely mean the boycotting of their businesses. This will surely mean loss of trade. Loss of reputation. Loss of family and friends. There are times, as I said last week, in, we, in which we must walk into the storm. We need to head to that which we say, I am going to get hurt. But where else can I go? And maybe again, you're, you're like those disciples when they came to that difficult part with Jesus, when they said, well, look, we don't understand you. We don't get what you're saying. And all these people are leaving you. But where can we go? You have the words of life. 
The failure to do this will be a sword of Jesus' mouth coming out and smiting you, which when we read later in Revelation is meted out against the rebellious world. So failure to address their compromise will put them alongside the unbelievers. There really is no point having one foot in and one foot out. The reward, the secret manna from Jesus, and a white stone. In the context of the Exodus, the manna can allude to the supernatural provision of God in difficult times. In other words, you're going to lose trade, you're going to lose business, you're going to lose a lot of money, but I'm going to feed you. I'm going to take you through the wilderness years, and I'm going to give you a secret provision. It may not be what you're used to, and it may not be the meat that Israel wanted when they were going through there, but it will be the bread of heaven. It will be sweet meat. It will be the food that you can say, better to eat herbs. in the place where God is, then be feasting in the place of sinners. God will take care of you. The stone and the white stone with a new name written on it is quite difficult because there's numerous allusions to, obviously, how stones were used in the ancient world. But the two I find most convincing is, one, the stone representing the stone of acquittal, a stone that you would have been given at the end of a trial to say that you were now free and obviously as proof of your freedom with your name written on it. So it could be that, that to have done what they're supposed to do would mean that God will now give you your freedom, your acquittal from the judgment, from the sword proceeding from his mouth. The other one, which I'm a little bit more um, attuned to, and I kind of leaning towards, is at certain feasts, a stone would be, you would need to give a stone in terms of entry into the feast and feasting with, a, you know, to a particular party. So it was like your ticket. And with the, with the mention of manner, it's almost like, I will give you a stone that will enter you into a place where you can feast with me. And again, that sits quite nicely with me. But there are numerous other ways you can read it. But ultimately, it means that you're going to be in line with God. And it's going to be well. Phytira. I'm moving swiftly on. And to the angel of the church in Phytira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your, work, your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works." I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Phytira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned but that what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast that which you have until I come. 
the one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with them with a, them with a rod of iron. And as when earthen pottles are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So what's the attribute of Christ? Well, the eyes of fire and the feet of burning brass. Well, these speak of Jesus seeing through deceit, right? Again, we, we went through that last week. The feet of bronze are, of bronze are, are stability, but also, I believe, can allude to the altar, the, the place of burning, the place of sacrifice, the place of judgment. What's the good? Well, their love, their faith, their endurance, it's growing. Well, that's good. What's the bad? They tolerate the false prophetess Jezebel. Now, we're not to obviously think about this, a woman who literally was called Jezebel, but is being typified as Jezebel in the Old Testament was a symbol of a person who came into Israel and taught them how to worship Baal and instituted it as the national religion. So where there was Ahab, who was married to Jezebel, who was quite happy to worship Yahweh, but at the same time was obviously worshipping Baal at the same time, there was these two religions living side by side, as though that was all right. There are times where we can be in a church where there are two religions being practiced, or maybe even more. Tolerate is to be noted as giving space to something, but not actually accepting it yourself. So that's the issue. There are things that we may also tolerate, even though you have good reason to label it as false, yet in the spirit of goodwill, or for the sake of living in a pluralistic society, we really don't challenge it. What's the application? Well, the church is in action leads to Jesus' action by pronouncing sickness on her. So their failure to act has meant that Jesus now has to interact and he's going to put Jezebel on her sickbed and all the things that she has done are not going to be fruitful. Jesus has had to do this. Again, speaks of his presence in the church being very real and speaks to the fact that their own inaction has put Jesus in that position. I liken this to David in 1 Samuel 17. You know, when, Jesus, when David walks onto that battlefield and he sees Goliath saying the things that he says, and he knows that Yahweh is gunning for this giant. And David says to him, Yahweh will smite you down on this very day. Not him. Sometimes you can see a false prophet speaking and the Lord just, you just get riled up and you say, Lord, I know you want to remove this from your presence. And all we do is we stand in the place where we're ready to see God act. And we call it out. If God doesn't wipe this out, I don't know. I don't know who the Lord is. 
And that's exactly what David does. He stands in the place of faith and says, Lord, you will not tolerate this man in the Valley of Elah speaking the way he is about your people and about who you are. Even more so, we see this in Jesus' life, right? Challenge the false teachings of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priests in his time, pronouncing even woes upon them. God is going to destroy this. God, if you see this temple you're so proud of, God is going to wipe it off the face of the earth. And more so, when you think you want to be able to rebuild it, I'm going to go and put some Islamic piece of temple on it and see what you're going to do now. It is kind, it is actually more kind as opposed to being cruel or intolerant to declare that people are in danger of judgment. Because like I said, it was not like these people are going to go scot-free who come in with these false teachings. Jesus is actually telling you, I will deal with it if you don't deal with it. Just like God was going to deal with Goliath. Just like God was going to deal with the priests and the fact that the religious elite in Jesus' time, he was going to deal with them. It's actually kind to tell them, maybe you need to stand out of the way to those who have an ear to ear. What will Jesus give them? Authority. That's interesting, isn't it? Because this is exactly what we're talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Is that they will get authority from Jesus. The reward is authority. is consistent with what we see in David. Taking charge in the battlefield. In the Valley of Elah. Where we are now taking authority and saying. God is going to do something against you. We need to put ourselves in a position, even though it may not be our personality, to challenge these things when we know they're false. And not think it's kind, but if we see God's judgment impending on these things, we need to speak or think God's thoughts after him. And that is to say that you can see something is going to happen and you just say, you know what, you may want to stand out of the way. And, and disassociate yourself with that particular group of people. Because when they fall, they will fall hard. The morning star, again, in, um, is a symbol of Venus as well within the Roman society, and it's that symbol of victory. So that authority is, is, is that and only you will see the victory when you come in the authority of the Lord. And so that, that, that morning star is ratifying that, that symbol of victory. It's not that we look for these things to be victorious, but to stand in God's authority is to stand in the place of victory, right? Let's move on to Sardis. 
To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that you, what, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have, a, have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, the churches. So the attribute revealed is Jesus with the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, that perfection of the perfect Christ, the perfect Godhead. The good, there are only a few who have not soiled their garments and are pure before Jesus. So in other words, there's, it's the, the good is basically there's a, there's a remnant of people who still haven't compromised. The bad has a reputation of being healthy. Numbers may be assumed here rather than healthy in terms of like, you know, vitality and all the rest of it. But they are actually dying spiritually. Their works are also incomplete. The application, well, they need to repent and wake up. They need to remember what they, had, uh, what they were literally were, were when they were alive, when they were actually thriving. They need to go back to the fundamentals. That was the first, what they first received and keep. If there was ever a description of the so-called progressive church, and this is it. It is one thing to be a friend to the culture as a means to evangelize and another to be congenial to it that you offer it no challenge and nothing to repent of. Again, I, th- I, I, I can't see any other way to connect it but than to the progressive church. Who believe that we need to, to, to kind of create greater harmony for greater opportunity to evangelize. But then at the heart of it, there's nothing for anybody to repent of because God loves you whoever you are. No matter what you do, The reward, a white garment, a promise not to blot out their name from the book of life and to have Jesus confess them to the Father and to the angels. Again, this whole idea of the book of life, not necessarily being a literal book, but again, a symbol of those who are saved and unsaved in the mind of God, who God knows. Obviously, a white garment speaks of that purity, of getting back to salvation. Moving swiftly on. Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. 
I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am the coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here, Christ is revealed as having the keys of David. This speaks of the messianic authority. And it is Jesus who, is a, who will allow those to come into his new kingdom. So again, especially in relation to the, 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 the false Jews, the ethnic Jews who are challenging them and putting them under persecution, he says that, that Jesus is the one who actually decides who comes in. It's not them you're supposed to listen to. No matter how much they're telling you, you're not really part of what we are doing. You're not really part of Yahweh's movement. We are the true Jews. But Jesus has the final say. The good? Well, Jesus knows their works and has accepted them. Even though they have little power, they have kept his word and and not denied his name. And it would appear that their strength has already given way and Christ is now upholding them. So that little strength is allusion to the fact that the fact that they're, they're still standing is Christ standing with them. And those who are persecuting them are the Jews who represented the rejected Israel. And there is a strange allusion here to to Isaiah 60, verse 14, where there is a reversal where it's believed that the Jews will have people come bow down to them, but actually it's the Jews now that will come bow down to these Gentiles. And it says this, The son of those who afflicted you shall come bending low low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So Jesus is alluding to that passage which every Jew would have thought referred to them. But Jesus is saying, no, actually, I am the city. I hold the keys to the city and you are the true Israel. And those who persecuted you will come bowing down to you. What a strange reversal, right? Jesus now proclaims that the ethnic, the outward Jews, will bow down to the spiritual the inward ones. Jews in a strange reversal of fortune, much like what we see happen between Isaac and Ishmael. That, that position of prestige, being the first son of Abraham, was reversed as the son of promise comes. No, actually, Ishmael, you will bow down to Isaac. Isaac will be the inheritor. And, that's no, and, and those of you who have been through the Bible, and it's no stranger to see that reversal, what we call the cross, you know, Ephraim over Manasseh, all those kind of things are, are strong allusions that 
what people thought they were entitled to, Jesus now changes that and reverses it. The bad, well, again, as I said, no kicking them when they're already down, right? <laughs> Jesus just says, I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to try and support you. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. I'm going to support you. In the application, they need to hold on and be faithful. Again, there's nothing more to do. Having more, you know, what more to do to stand. And just find as many ways in which you can encourage somebody to keep on standing. Their reward, there will be pillars in the temple of God. Again, this speaks to that, what we, you know, we were studying in 1 Corinthians 3 a few years back, isn't it? The whole idea of the church being the actual temple as opposed to a physical building, that the people become the temple of God. And so it's no strange thing that you see that they will become actual pillars within this structure. And Jesus will write his name on them and God's name and the new kingdom's name. That's that whole idea of possession, isn't it? When we, we, we want something that we obviously we want to do, we, we sign our, our things. We don't do it so much now. But that whole idea of, of putting our name on something is that whole idea of your mind and no one else's. Finally, the church at Laodicea. Not doing too bad. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold, cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the attributes of Christ revealed is that Jesus announces the amen, the, 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 the final authority, the faithful and the true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. Jesus, as, as the beginning of God's creation, doesn't mean that he has created. Again, you know, I kind of want to park here and say this is, you know, maybe one of those go-to texts for the Jehovah Witnesses, isn't it? It says, he creates, you know, so he's not created as the Aryans and the Muslims and the Jehovah Witness believe. That's not what it means. This type of reading would be irreconcilable to John 1 and Hebrews 1. And going over them briefly, John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's not created. 
Again, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So you can see that reading of Jesus being the first creation is not this whole idea of he was created. Because you couldn't reconcile that to the rest of the text. Even John's own words in his own a gospel. So we are not to read that at all. Well, what's the good? Absolutely nothing. What's the bad? They do not have the healing hot spring of Heropolis, which is one of its neighboring cities, or the cold, refreshing waters of Colossae. They're good for nothing. Yet they boast as if they're doing very well, really well. The deluded church, above all, needs to be careful how they hear because they are truly deceived in thinking that they are thriving when they are not. Well, what's the application? They need to repent and be reinvested in the spiritual help that Christ has to offer because Laodicea was rich in trade. It was a rich city, the riches of all mentioned here, but it needs gold from Jesus. It was renowned also for black wool and for a special tunic, which was called the trimeter. But it needs a new garment from Jesus, one that isn't black, but is actually white. As a, you know, also, as a renowned medical center, it was a renowned medical center. It produced and imported a popular eye salve, but it needs eye salve from Jesus. Again, this is the writer and, and Jesus writing into a historical context. These were things that they were actually good at. But yet, from a spiritual position, no matter, though you're living in a prosperous city, the church really needs to have its investment in the spiritual as opposed to the material gains of the city. We can be so deceived into thinking that we have the material means to build our blessed lives that we do not need, really need to rely on Jesus for any blessings. There's, there is a point where you can literally say, I really have everything I like, need to enjoy life. We live in London, you live in New York, you live in Tokyo, you, you, know, you live in one of these prosperous cities, you've got a good job. You've got a, I mean, you are living the blessed life. What do you really need? I mean, what am I really relying on God? And this is where, again, as many commenters say in this particular situation, is that the rich hardly enter into the... What, what is Jesus offering me? Because if it's that kind of raw Judaism, which is basically like, I'm after the blessed life, I'm, I'm after that Deuteronomy 28 life, then you can get there without Jesus. But that's not the blessed life. We can be so proud of our cultural achievements that we have no ability to see that it is bankrupt and that what we need is a better culture such as only God can provide. We can be so vain in our scientific achievements that we don't ever even feel the need to look up to God for help. The reward, well, Jesus will eat with those who open the door to him. 
and also allow them to sit on the throne with him. The grace of God is such that the last shall be first. It's amazing grace, isn't it? The best gift is for the last. It kind of reminds me of that, that parable of the laborers, isn't it? The ones that, 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 get, that come in and just work one hour and, and they, get it, they get the same wage as those who have gone through all the tribulation. They've gone through the heat of the day. To sit with me on the throne. Those who have the most to repent of are given the best seat in the house. And isn't that just like our Jesus, isn't it? I've come to save sinners. These people can merely see where they are. I'm prepared to give you what you need. Application. Looking back at my introduction and marrying what we find in chapters 2 and 3 here in Revelation and, and, and bringing that with Daniel and also adding the parables of, of Matthew 24 and 25, we start to see that there is no room for stagnation. In the Christian walk, we either sink or swim. Without an active faith, the believer's spiritual life will fall into a spiritual entropy. The culture around us will always, to some extent, reflect some of the Savior's grace, and we're thankful for that. Though not saving grace is not nothing, it is, it is impossible for them to live completely without his common grace. So this is not about, you know, the world is no good, you know, let's live as hermits, let's just cut ourselves off, let's all be Amish. No, there's many good things that we see reflected in the world, in the culture around us. They are still his creatures. We are all still made in his image. But it's here that Daniel can be helpful for us in understanding how human engagements between saved and unsaved can clash and misunderstand each other. From the time that Daniel reached Babylon, even the very food he was offered generously by the king came with the potential to compromise his covenant standing with God. Food offered to idols cannot be seen as nothing as long as it is not nothing to those around us. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. If other people believe in it, then we've got to be careful how we engage with it. Daniel gives us a first-hand perspective of how tricky it can be to live as, a new, as the new Israel amongst the pagan world. We must also note that the modern secular world is still the equivalent of the ancient pagan world. We must do the hard work of discovering the gods behind the scenes of the modern culture. I would recommend to you my teacher's books, Plugged In, Connecting Your Faith with What You Watch, Read and Play by Dan Strange. And for those of you on a more academic level, I would thoroughly recommend for his, his other book, For Their Rock Is Not Our Rock. If you want to learn how to engage in the culture and read it, where are you and us individually and collectively to be found in this text? For sure we are represented somewhere within it because that is how the prophetic nature of God's word works as I unpacked to you last week. Are you coming from a background where you had to fight for doctrinal purity? 
So much so that you are poised to gun anyone down who brings any whiff of doctrinal error. Are you coming under attack, feeling the temptation to alter your Christian stance on certain key issues to get the super-religious types off your back? Those who believe that, they are, that, that you are not woke enough, not spirit-filled enough, not liberal enough to be a true Christian. All under the guise that Christianity is only predicated on love, but not justice and truth. Or even on the reverse of that, we're not conservative enough. Are we listening to the modern-day Balaams or Jezebels who tell us that we can have our cake and eat it too, that we can serve both God and mammon? Are you so removed from the fundamentals of the faith that if you actually look carefully at your beliefs, you can't really claim that you hold to biblical Christianity? Are you so culturally climatized to the world that you place no value on the kingdom? I already have what I want from life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.